Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, GCast episode 89, and I'm on with Lisa Bame, and she is now a friend, and she is a friend of a friend, I shouldn't say friend of a she's a friend of a friend, but kind of like a sister of a sister wife, that's kind of how we, <laughs> how we roll, so Lisa, welcome to the podcast, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be um, participating in this cool project. Awesome. So Lisa, tell us who you are briefly in your own words before we get started. So uh, I am a young woman. I live in the Pacific Northwest um, and I am a survivor of multiple accounts of rape and sexual assault and gender-based violence. And I am a survivor. Absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. And I wish that we did not have to, I want to put this as delicately as possible. People sometimes are like, you talk so slow, but it's because I'm really thoughtful in the words that I say, and I understand the impact they have. I wish that we didn't even have to talk about sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, that would be a beautiful day when that was no longer something that we needed to discuss because of the violence, of the violation, of the impact that it has on the survivor, those around them, and the rest of society. And so that's one of the reasons I did want you to come on because that is part of your experience. It's part of your story. And you are an absolutely amazing, I, I started this phrase, <laughs> badass brigade. Um, you are an amazing human that advocates for people, um, that have a voice and many more that don't. And so I appreciate how you lend your support, um, to humanity and really educating people. So I think it's appropriate to say that there is adult content on this particular podcast episode. There may be language, there may be, um, things that are not appropriate for little people. And so I would just advise if you thought that you might listen to this on the way home from carpool, um, that you reconsider <laughs> and perhaps listen to something else um, until you're able to be by yourself or just uh, in adult company. So Lisa, um, you mentioned that you're the survivor of multiple um, sexual assaults and gender-based violence. Can you tell us... Um, maybe not specifics, but how old you were the first experience that you had? Yeah, boy, that's like, honestly, even kind of hard to pinpoint. I remember the first time I realized I was being sexualized. I was walking through a parking lot with my mom wearing a brand new halter top that I had bought with my own money at Abercrombie and Fitch. I was probably like, 12 and we walked by three men standing at the bed of a pickup truck and I just remember feeling their eyes on me and looking at my mom and seeing the murder in her eyes and we just kept walking um so that was the first time I distinctly remember being sexualized but in terms of sexual assault you know, to be really honest, like sexual assault is really pervasive in public schools. 
or at least it was in my public school. And so the first time that I remember someone laying hands on my body without even a hint of <laughs> warning was when I was probably about the same age, actually. I think I was in sixth or seventh grade. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough to hear, um, especially for anyone. I mean, anyone who's breathing or has a heartbeat ought to be feeling something right now. But definitely, if you are connected in any way, shape, or form to young people, and knowing that this is what is happening, um, and it may not be every person's experience yet it's one person's experience and that's enough that it happened once is too much um totally. right and so uh, you mentioned you know kind of the pervasiveness of this um what do you mean by that uh that's a really valuable question so um a lot of people are familiar with the term or at least have heard it they don't necessarily know what it means, but rape culture sure. is kind of a buzzword right now. It's something that we, or a buzz term, something that we talk about a lot, but I don't think that there is really an appreciation for how nuanced that term is. Um, but the idea basically, which like my existence supports this theory is that the way that Western culture is constructed is a way that creates a lot of space for violence against women or sexual violence against any kind of person and that it's normalized and so in normalizing sexual violence it becomes okay in a way and that allows it to kind of eke into all of these different facets of the human experience where you wouldn't expect to find sexual violence at the grocery store. You wouldn't expect to find it in the classroom, but it's there because rape culture is real. It does exist and it has altered the way our society functions as a unit for the worse. Sure. And so Lisa, without going into necessarily your own personal experience with this, but what are some examples of, the sexualization and or I mean, you gave your example of walking through the parking lot, but in terms of or end in terms of kind of what we've grown accustomed to and with violence, gender based violence, what are some examples that people may not be making that connection with? Because I think one of the reasons that I have found it necessary to smash the stigma around survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, amongst other things, right? Is that to your point, things have become so normalized that people don't even bat an eye, you know? Yeah. They think, oh, you're being sensitive. They were only paying you a compliment. So what are some examples that people have kind of started to ingrain in their own psyche that it's not a big deal and it really is a big deal. Oh my God, that's such a huge question, Shadima. It's like, I mean, everything, but at the same time, it's so hard to identify because I'm immersed in this culture too. Sure. So I can look at stuff and say, well, that's normal. And then, you know, two days or a year down the line, I'll look back at something and go, holy fuck, like how did I 
accept that as being okay for me. Um, so, I mean, one gleaming example is the fact that we have a president who has admitted to touching women's bodies without their consent. And we found that out before he became president. And yeah. another example of just like hypersexualization and not seeing women as um, like complex beings. But if you look at like any blockbuster movie with a female protagonist, her entire existence is oriented around the male protagonist in the movie. And she's probably wearing impractical sexy clothing because we are taught and our entertainment reflects the opinion that women aren't interesting or important unless they're sexy. Um, sure. And that totally strips women of their autonomy. And I think for me, that's kind of the root of the issue is that women are not respected as autonomous beings. Um, so yeah, like locker room talk, that's a great example of things that we accept as like normal parts of our culture, but it's in fact a really violent feature of our culture. Sure. Yeah. It's, um, someone was on the red carpet and actually a woman reporter, not even a, like entertainment reporter said, oh yeah. And you were probably the sexy so-and-so and the actor said, or actually I was just a, you know, yeah her role um because she is a i mean there's nothing wrong with being sexy i mean i i i like that but to be reduced to that is therein yes. lies the problem right and which is what you're saying yes women are complex sexual beings and there is nothing wrong with being sexy or you know we're all allowed to objectify ourselves to the own degree that we feel comfortable sure. but it's when it's done without our part of it without our consent by somebody else that's where it becomes toxic sure speaking of toxic so toxic toxic masculinity so you and i have been on various social media threads <laughs> where people have shown their true colors and have really made either an issue that wasn't about them about them or has totally derailed the conversation to go in a direction for which it had not begun. Um, so toxic masculinity is another buzz term that we're hearing about. So I would love to hear from you. Um, if anyone's listening, you may think you may know what it means. Um, and maybe you're not exactly sure. So let's, let's chat about that. So toxic masculinity for me is also like just the biggest deal. Um, for those who are maybe unfamiliar with the term or hear it floating around and don't quite know what it means, it's the idea that there are cultural values that have been deemed masculine and taken to the like 10,000th degree to the point where they become unhealthy. So a like kind of comical example of toxic masculinity that I want to offer because it's less triggering and traumatic for us to talk about is um, men not wiping their asses when they take a shit. There is, if you Google it, there are men all across the internet <laughs> divulging the fact that they don't wipe after they go number two because they've been conditioned to think that it's somehow quotes gay or effeminate to touch their own ass 
And it's like, that's a real thing. That's toxic. That's bad hygiene. That's hyper-masculinity taken to the point where you're now like a really gross person with bad body hygiene. Like it's nonsensical. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then in the other end of the spectrum, toxic masculinity is men refusing to give space to women in any conversation. Like mansplaining is a great, again, really pervasive example of how um, like certain masculine coded things have been taken so far that they've become unproductive or unhealthy. And um, it can kind of take shape in things like mansplaining, but it also can be really toxic and violent sure yeah i remember one time that i was on um a friend had posted a photo about some peaceful protests in new york city and one of her friends posted something completely unrelated <laughs> and brought up black lives matter and i was like i'm sorry what what <laughs> Resident black woman here, let me tell what you. What did, how, did you, did you respond? Did you oh, speak out? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, yes, I, I did. Um, I, and then the sad thing is he did not continue the conversation because, you know, I was supporting my friend who spoke up and spoke out about her own experience in New York and how it had been lovely and watching these peaceful protests. And he started mansplaining about Black Lives Matter. And he's neither black. I mean, he is a man, but he's not black, a black man. And he wasn't in New York at the time. That, <laughs> so I was confused what he was offering to the conversation besides chaos and confusion. Yeah. And I think. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just I think that brings us to a really interesting point about um, the way that women and men take up space differently in space sure. and in conversation, like in public spaces and in conversation, women are con are more conditioned to uh, be quiet. So docility is a traditionally feminine um, virtue, quote unquote. I personally don't think much of docility. It's never gotten me anywhere, but it's a definitely a cultural norm for men to be more aggressive and for men to be seen as authority figures and experts. So that, I mean, that is an, another really good example of toxic masculinity where you have someone who's not even a black person, who's not even in the state that the conversation is happening about shouting down a black woman and a woman who's in New York. Like, he's not an expert on that situation. He really doesn't have much to offer to the conversation. And that's something that I think a lot of men really struggle with is the fact that just because you have a thought or an idea doesn't mean that it's necessarily a meaningful contribution to the conversation that's happening. And I don't say that with the intention of silencing anyone. I don't say that in a way, like my heart when I say that is not telling me that men can't make meaningful contributions. It's just that all too often men take over spaces and conversations that should be centered around other people. So women or people of color or non-binary people. That's right. Um, 
And that's, you know, part of toxic masculinity is the inability to see that your privilege impacts the way that you move through the world. And in order to be a more peaceful, loving, justice-oriented person, you do have to make peace with your own privilege. And men right now in this particular moment don't have a lot of cultural support in doing so. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, I saw the photo and the video footage of members of Congress and they were all men appeared to be cisgender men talking about women's health issues and health care for women. Yeah, like which, in what way is that appropriate? Never. It's never appropriate, you know. It's the wrong response. Exactly. Um, and the thing is about privilege sometimes. So Stephanie, whom we both love and know, she was on the podcast um, earlier this year about privilege. And actually someone else that I um, – his name is escaping me now, but he does teach a lot about privilege and the various kind of platforms. I call it podium of privilege because I think about when someone steps up to a podium in a crowded room, generally there starts to be a hush over the room, you know, when someone's Mm -hmm. about to speak. And that is what privilege affords you amongst other things is the space and the time and the quiet to speak. And that is not a bad thing, except for when you use it selfishly. You know, I think that most people have at least one area in which they do enjoy privilege. Not all, but most people have at least one. And so how I use that one to two areas of privilege is really important. That matters how I do that and speaking up and speaking out against different things or amplifying the voices of someone who represents a marginalized community or exists in that space is incredibly important. Um, And knowing, I love what you said, knowing when to (laughs) STFU, right? Knowing when to shut up and just listen because listening is just as important, if not more important than speaking. And I think overwhelmingly that has been lost. Um, You know, leading up to the election, I call it a circus of an election cycle because we all were psychologically assaulted leading up to it. And we have been after. Um, There hasn't been as much listening. Um, People are saying things and, you know, not really approaching with any kind of love or tolerance or forgiveness or anything um, positive. It's a lot of talking and not as much listening for sure. So um, me too. So hashtag me too (laughs) happened last week. So we're recording, obviously when this goes live, we'll see where it is, but it happened. So what were your initial thoughts, Lisa, when you started seeing? Oh my God. Um, I mean, well, before we get into this conversation, I just want to say as an acknowledgement of, uh, Tarana Burke, the woman who actually started me to 10 years ago, for those of you who aren't familiar, 
I think it was Melissa, Alyssa Milano who yeah. tweeted first about it. She didn't start this. It was a woman of color. So I think we need to like hold this space first and foremost with the acknowledgement that um, this is an issue. Rape and sexual assault is an issue that disproportionately affects women of color and yep queer and trans women. So right. I just want to put that out there before I dive into thank my you. own story. Yes. Thank yeah. You. Um, so God, me too has been a whirlwind for me. Um, I really started speaking out about my own rape and sexual assault about five years ago. I had the opportunity to join a writing group and, write what we called a vagina memoir. So it's different than the monologues. We wrote our own stories and I performed mine in front of a crowd of 600 strangers. And it was traumatizing (laughs) in its own way. It was really traumatizing, but it was really empowering and it really changed my life. It's changed the way that I move through my own existence and the way that I see sexual assault. Um, So when Me Too happened, when I started seeing it, I really didn't feel any inclination to share my own story. The people who know me or who exist in any sphere with me know that I am really outspoken. I have way more than two cents to offer. I <laughs> like, and I am a person, honestly, who has trouble getting off the privilege podium. Like, I like, I talk a lot and I, a big project for me over the last few years has been really identifying when I'm a meaningful contributor and when I'm not. So I didn't feel inclined to share my own Me Too story on social media because I've already spoken out so publicly about it. And honestly, if you know me and you need to see me write the two words Me Too to know that I've been assaulted, you don't know me at all. And you, like, I got no time for you. If you haven't paid attention to anything, I've, if you have paid attention to anything I've ever said, you know that I am living with some shit and I don't need to, like, defend or... That's right. Anyways, tangent. But so one of the things that's been really challenging for me about Me Too is it's kind of pissing me off to see all of these people suddenly believing other women and it's great like don't get me wrong I am grateful for this and I couldn't be more inspired by the people who have spoken up with their own me too stories and I could not be more excited to see that door get cracked wider and wider open and casting light on everything that's been going on but the thing that has been really hard for me is I feel like a lot of people who are telling their Me Too stories are doing it because they feel like if they don't give all of the gory details, no one will believe them. And so I call it trauma porn. Like the whole Me Too movement has kind of been trauma porn. People are spilling their guts and it just seems for a lot of people like it has the potential to be re-traumatizing. And my wish is just that someone could say Me Too and that would be sufficient. And that no one would believe or no one would feel that they have to, um, you know, totally spill their guts in order to be believed. Some stories are not for sharing. Like some stories just really need to be tenderly cared for and processed through. So I really hope that for anyone out there who has shared their Me Too stories, 
and maybe has reservations because Lord knows there have been times when I've spilled my guts and regretted it or regretted the way that I did it. I really hope that if you're out there and you are feeling like you are too vulnerable and too raw, I really hope that you can find some resilience and that you can develop some strategy to help you move through this moment because that feeling doesn't last forever and it gets more empowering every time you talk about it. But the first time can often be so traumatizing. Sure. It's, it's true. Um, yeah, it, it was a lot to, to scroll through um, yeah. for sure. And some people, there were all sorts of opinions and thoughts on it, just like everything, right? Everyone, yeah. <laughs> everyone has a thought about everything. Um, and so I honor, I too honor people who share their story. Um, and my hope is that people would really see that and see how pervasive and how many people have been affected by sexual harassment and sexual assault and that we do something about it because the Lord knows we do not need another new campaign in six months or a year, right? Of, I don't know what we would call it then. It wouldn't be me too. It'd be something else because I feel like just last year there was something similar that kind of was on people's feeds. And it's like we have it's like we have, I don't want to say a medical condition because I don't want people to think that I'm being disrespectful to people with that medical condition. We just forget very easily yeah. in, the, in U.S. society and definitely Western culture where we've forgotten, you know, that this is not new. Um, I have two really dear friends who we're kind of blase about it. And some people got really offended with their attitude. And I, but I was like, but I agree with them. Like we're saying all this me too. And then now what? Because yeah. we have to do something with it. We cannot just afford to say me too. And then, then what, you know? And I completely agree. <laughs> like, I mean, this problem is so pervasive that I've been raped more than once. Mm-hmm. Like if it was a, outlier experience if it was somehow unusual I would have one singular traumatic experience and instead I have enough that I can categorize them as on a scale from like life ruining to okay this one will probably just put me in therapy for a few years like I have a I have a sexual assault story that I call my happy ending story because it was the one time that I happened to be in the proximity of friends and they came and they grabbed the guy and pinned his arms behind his back and let me decide what I wanted to happen to him. And I, like, I, I got my satisfaction in that moment in a way, but it was a terrifying, traumatizing experience. And like, I mean, it's just wild to me that my life, like, honestly, like I was saying, my first time I remember being sexualized is as a young girl. So I can say easily that my entire experience with with womanhood and with being an adult has been pockmarked by trauma, by like sexual trauma. And that's crazy. And I have so much privilege. I like, I have a pretty comfortable existence besides those things. And I, so 
what I also want to say to anyone else who's listening is like, everyone is impacted by this. Mm -hmm. And like, no, there is not a single human life that is not somehow impacted by the pervasiveness of sexual assault and rape culture. That's right. That's true, sadly. Uh, Lisa, can we get into the PSA that you're working on? Absolutely. So I'm really excited to be participating in a um, kind of small video project that a friend of mine is putting together. He is a very kind man based out of Bellingham, Washington, or actually he's in Seattle now. Um, and he's putting together a PSA about Me Too. So he invited women, or really anyone, but focusing on women and non-binary people who have been impacted by sexual assault. And he invited us to come speak on camera about our experiences. So last week, I sat down with him for, I think, about an hour and a half. And it was a really cathartic, like really wonderful experience. Um, my boyfriend was there and that was very healing in a way for him to be able to just hear my stories without having to participate in conversation about it. That was a really kind of singular, unique experience, but it was great. Um, so I spoke on camera pretty much about everything that we are talking about right now, as did 20 other people. So it's amazing. This guy, Micah, has created such an incredible healing opportunity for people, for survivors to speak about what they live through and what they live with. And then <laughs> shortly after, um, he got a really vile comment on his Facebook, his personal Facebook page saying 20 interviews. It was something like, uh, 20 interviews with zero fact-checking, welcome to America. And it just spun out from there. And this, um, this person was grievously offended that Micah would create a space for people to potentially name their accusers is what he seemed really worried about, is that people were going to be throwing around names and it would be damning all of these people, which is honestly kind of funny because it's like, dude, it's not about you. Like, it's not about men. This is about the survivors. It's not about their attackers. It's about like, I'm in the middle of my own story. I don't need to name names to you. I don't know who the hell you are. You right. don't deserve a story. Like, leave me alone. So he really lost it. And we got into this. I commented back on it and just said that it really sounded like he had some skeletons in his closet. If you're going to try that hard and that like linguistically violently to shut up survivors, it's probably because there's someone waiting to name you as my, was my two cents. Sure. And I said the word survivor and he commented back, you know, I said, it seems like you're disinterested in creating a space for survivors to speak freely and feel safe sharing their stories. And he commented back and said, um, survivor, fuck you. Try telling that to my brother who served two tours in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Like, I'm gonna, um, like your name will be mud. I'm gonna tell everyone that you're like anti-American. It's just like, what does that have to do with 
anything that we're talking about. And it was so bizarre and he was incredibly hostile, but it was just, and then he proceed, pardon, he proceeded to send Micah, our producer, uh, a slew of messages saying that he was going to ruin his career and make sure that he never got another film job again. And it just like, it was really threatening and really hostile and kind of self aggrandizing. Um, but it was such a perfect example of why women don't come forward or why people, I shouldn't keep saying women, it's not just women, but why people don't come forward about um, speaking about assault and harassment is because that's the reaction they get. You know, I remember, and I know I said I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about this, but I do want to say that the only time I've ever come forward, I was followed into uh, the girls' locker room by a group of boys and cornered and told to take it back. And it's like, we have to foster a system where that creates safety and we have to create something where women are able to speak freely. And I think that's kind of the space that me too is making. It's shifting the cultural perspective on coming forward about rape and abuse and violence. And that's really exciting because it's creating space for women. It's outing trolls and it's kind of showing us like all of the shitty people in the woodwork. It's like, you know, we, you have to purge. You can't just slowly get healthy. We have to have a cultural purge where we enact consequences and where people get vulnerable and make apologies and make reparations and where people start feeling safer. Yeah, no, that's, that's so true. And I mean, that was an example of toxic masculinity. He oh, yeah. went overboard. I mean, I read the thread and I just said, what in the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was shocked into silence a little bit because I could not fathom or understand how he took a leap from this good work that Micah is doing by creating space so that survivors can share their story. And yes, um, to your point, Lisa, we've, we have spoken throughout this last, you know, time that we've spent together and gendered language overwhelmingly. And that's because statistics do speak for themselves in this case. And statistically women are the survivors of sexual assault as compared to men speaking in just binary gendered, gendered language. Yeah. Well, and I just want to jump off of that and go kind of look at it through another lens. Sure. While men can be raped, yes, hands down, nine. I mean, I don't have specific numbers on this, but men are the perpetrators of rape. That's right. Men who are survivors of rape are often gay men. Um, yep. or non-binary people mm-hmm. who are statistically counted as men. But the point is the perpetrators of okay. sexual violence are more often than not men. This is a distinctly masculine problem. Yes. And that is important to note so that when we're talking about these things, I think one of the few places that a man should be 
besides listening to this, especially if that's not their experience as a survivor, is to think within themselves, how can I do better? And what can I do to stop this from being the reality for so many other humans? Because every 98 seconds, this is a stat. Every 98 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted in this country. That is beyond unacceptable. Every 98 seconds, (laughs) you know, so that is just shy of every two minutes, someone is being sexually assaulted. So how many people is that during this entire podcast episode? Too many. Devastating. Right. And the results reverberate. They, you know, it's like the stone in the water. Um, The impact is far reaching and sometimes we don't even see it, not even to talk about the links between being a survivor of sexual assault and mental health concerns and substance use disorder, um, amongst other things. So not saying that they're just because this happened to you, then this will happen. I'm not suggesting that at all. However, there are a lot of commonalities with people's stories because they've had a traumatic experience like sexual assault and what, how it's changed the course or the trajectory of their lives. So that's really important for us to really consider, you know, um, and why, and why survivors are not speaking up because of the shame and the victim blaming that exists and shrouds around it as the silence and the stigma of, can I really share the truth? Yeah. What will I be met with? Well, and one of the things that for me in recent years, especially as I have, like, I have in some ways really come to terms with my own survivorhood, but I still meet people who haven't and who, like, when your autonomy is violated like that, there are things in you that die. Sure. And I if you've never, if you've never been assaulted or experienced that kind of violence, I pray the rest of your life looks like that. But if you have, you know, when you kind of see it in someone else and you can either recognize that they are living with a similar piece or that they are living through the regrowth, because it is possible to regrow. Everything in you that has died will bloom again, but it takes dedication and it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of resources that are not available to all people so it can be a really arduous process for most but one of the things that has been really difficult for me in recent years as I have been discovering more and more people and really I feel pretty confident in saying that almost every single person in my like most intimate circle of friends has been assaulted in some way And the thing that's so shitty about it is when that happens, for most people, it's a secret. And you have to grieve the things in you that are dying by yourself. You have to grieve alone for that. And that's so fucking sad to me. Mm -hmm. In every other traumatic life event, we get to mourn in public. We get to mourn death in public. We get to mourn cancer and suicide and lost children and lost parents and all of those 
kinds of griefs that people carry with them and violent grief you get to mourn in public. You know, if someone you know is beaten or killed or harmed by a stranger in a non-sexual way, that's usually more part of the public discourse than sexual violence is. There's no fucking casseroles for rape. You don't get a meal train while you're on your like recovery path. You do it by yourself or with your really small intimate circle. And that for me is really heartbreaking. Having lived through that and now having to watch other people that I know who are living with more recent or more intense and unprocessed experiences than what I'm currently living with. Um, it's just so isolating and it makes me really sad that it's such an isolating experience, which is why for me it's so imperative that I continue to speak out because I remember feeling alone and, you know, like I will hear any survivor I will make space for anyone. Like if you have been harmed, I carry a pain like that too. And I remember what it felt like to be alone and no one should ever have to feel that way. So I'm so grateful for this moment in time where people are speaking out more. Um, so that they're like, I honestly, like while I was mad about the thought that women had to perform survivorhood, I've never felt less alone than seeing my, like logging onto Facebook and seeing me too, me too, me too, me too. And it's this like awful secret fucked up club that no one wants to be a member of. Sure. No one deserves membership here. It's a terrible place to be. But then you meet someone or you find out that someone is also a member of this awful, awful club. And there's a little bit of joy in it because you know that you're not alone. And then there's tremendous grief and tremendous anger because you have to process the fact that someone else is living with the same kind of violence that you are. So thank you so much, Lisa, for being on the podcast and being so vulnerable and transparent and authentic and, you know, really speaking truths to power in a meaningful way that honors not only your story and your experience, um, but those around you. Um, because you always have a way of speaking um, that even though you are tough, and I say that with the, as the highest compliment, you provide grace if people are willing to extend themselves as well. But when they're not, you know, you still keep it moving and you're all about providing information and navigating is what I'm sharing helpful here or is it not? Would it be better to amplify a voice or be silent? Um, and I just really appreciate that because you're well versed and researched about several different things and you've done your own work and it's really apparent. So I'm just so glad that you chose to spend your afternoon with me and listeners and sharing your experience. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for having me. I have recently really been finding myself feeling more drawn towards advocacy work. So being vulnerable for me is healing for me myself. And it's also I see it as an opportunity to bring healing to other people. And I also just want to say, because a lot of this conversation has centered around um, like experiences on social media, 
one part of social media culture is getting called out when you slip up. And I just want to say that I would not be able to speak the way that I do if I hadn't had some really hard call outs in the past. And I know there's more to come because no one's perfect. And I, of course, am speaking from a place of my own privilege, but part of healing and part of participating in this great human experience is learning how to accept your failures with grace. Um, and so I just hope that we all find ourselves more able to do that so that we can better love each other when we aren't fucking up and lift each other up more. I love it. So true. All right, friends. So we are going to read, um, a story from Humans of New York. This one was when they were in St. Petersburg, Russia. And so it appears to be a young woman and she says, we were together for nine years. I was completely dependent on him. He was a strong and powerful man and he expected obedience. If he called me at 4 a.m. and told me to meet him in Moscow, I was expected to go to the train station. He had a very strong energy. It was hard to argue with him. In the beginning of the relationship, I obeyed because of the pressure, but then the pressure just became a habit. It got worse as time went on. Eventually, he stopped listening to me completely. I became so lonely. When you're with someone who doesn't care about your views and has no desire to understand you, it's worse than being alone. I still loved him, though. I knew that he had, that he had, had a hard life. I told myself that I had to make him suffer sacrifices to build a family. But one morning I woke up and decided that I couldn't do it anymore. If I stayed in the relationship, I would lose myself completely. I remember it was raining that morning. There was mud in the streets and something told me today is the day. That was two years ago. I spent these last two years learning to be alone. I'm realizing the things that I like to do. I feel better. I look better. And I've been sharing more of myself with others. I feel like I'm finally learning who I am which is so mm -hmm. awesome and so healing and empowering. Yeah. I just listened to a woman talking about um, finding interest in your, I'm going to take myself to coffee or to museum way, but in a like, what is important to me and what is important about me kind of way sure. and like that really resonates with that really getting to like love yourself that's that was really beautiful right totally beautiful so friends thank you so much for listening thank you for supporting this podcast sharing episodes subscribing to it rating it i love to hear from you so definitely reach out I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. So I hope everyone has a gratitude-filled day. My name is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie. And this is the Type A Hippie podcast. She casts episode 89. And that's it, friends. Namaste.